0: Listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Jasmine Nicole Cobb, a professor of African and African American Studies and of Art, Art History, and Visual Studies at Duke University, as well as the co-director of the From Slavery to Freedom Franklin Humanities Lab. A scholar of Black cultural production and visual representation, Dr. Cobb is the author of Picture Freedom, Remaking Black Visuality in the Early Nineteenth Century. She is the editor for African American Literature in Transition, 1800-1830, to 1830, and she has written essays for public culture, malice, multi-ethnic literature of the United States, as well as American literary history. In this conversation, we discuss her latest monograph, New Growth, The Art and Texture of Black Hair, reveals the various ways that people of African descent forge new relationships to the body, public space, and visual culture through the embrace of black hair. So we're here today with Dr. Jasmine Nicole Cobb. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, so before we dive into your project, I wanted to start by asking you the origins of this project, a sort of invitation to narrate us how you came to it, what sort of concerns, personal, ethical, philosophical, that drew you to the questions in new growth. I'm so excited. I've been waiting for this for a while. So <laughs> I'm glad you're able to get this out successfully. And the book, people... The pages are wonderful, the quality, you can really, you know, feel it, so I'm glad to get into it.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me and for your kind words about the book. Uh, I've been researching here for quite some time, uh, always with the book in mind. I started out with an interest about natural hair communities on the internet at the beginning of the 21st century and where I landed was a book about um, natural hair and its meaning in art and visual culture from the 19th century to the present. Um, I was really interested in natural hair specifically, hair that's not straightened and the sort of social and cultural significations attached to having Afro-textured hair.
0: So I guess, you know, one of my curiosities while I got into this book, you know, you've been thinking about hair for a while. When, what do you think were some of your first questions, you know, around hair? and I'm pretty sure this may have been a decade or so or <laughs> just in the <laughs> making, cause we've all had these questions about hair, but I guess when were the, the I don't wanna say scholarly, but you know, that complex idea of hair that came mm-hmm. to you.
1: Yeah, so I was interested in Afro textured hair as something that held uh, political signification. To people, you know whether you straightened your hair or not, and what that seemed was supposed to mean about your politics uh, ideas about self acceptance, the value of blackness, so on and so forth and i didn't uh lean one way or the other, uh, but in hindsight, as I look back as I was curious about the meaning of hair just in life and culture, um, I was moving away from straightening my own hair and i started to see messages about possible associations between <clears throat> chemical straighteners and health problems so all these things were sort of happening around me and i think the like all research it it became scholarly just through my fixation on what my own hair meant, what other people's hair means to them, how Black women are able to form communities in real life and online around how they care for their hair, Um, but also barbershops and beauty salons as these sacred spaces that require some cultural knowledge and awareness to enter into. So it was sort of everything about black hair culture was fascinating to me. And I was trying to understand it differently or maybe more critically than what I had just understood as a black person about when I straighten my hair and when I don't and so on and so forth. So it just, it kind of grew, my fascination grew and my ability to ask research questions you know came into deeper focus all at the same time.
0: And so you begin the book in the introduction you start off by talking about Frederick Douglass's 1847 portrait where his hair Um, the thick crown of curls is paired with formal attire. I remember the first time I saw that; I was like, "That's pretty cool." (laughs) Um, My dad also kind of rocked that state, but he had an afro with like a gold chain, and then he would put on a suit. And so it's kind of normalized in our eyes, but it's you know, then you put it to Western media, they're like, "Hmm, this is different." (laughs) Mm -hmm. You draw this specific attention to the parting of his hair. Um, Mm -hmm. And you really kind of speak about it, like this has been done deliberately, like almost as if he touched it with his own hand, um, which is nice to kind of think about the process. So I really think the conversation starts there with his parting. So can you tell us how and why you start the conversation there and then make connections to touch and feeling associated with textured hair?
1: Sure. So I had seen this picture of Douglas forever, like many people, especially those of us exploring 19th century visual culture. And it's one of, I think, the more fascinating images of Douglas because it's so early on and his co- confrontation with the camera is so piercing and direct that. Um, Everything about his comportment in the image says he is self appointed, right? Um, but the history of the image, we know that's a little complicated, right? How the extent to which he is uh, free legally um, at the time the picture was taken. But in the corpus of images about Douglas, I just think this is such a central. Illustration, and sort of the proof of that to me was the Rashid Johnson image that I cite, self-portrait with my hair parted like Frederick Douglass, which is a 2003 image. Where, if you look at the images side by side, the part is really the only thing that connects the images. The the posture and the gaze. Um, Link up, but it's not as if Johnson looks like Douglas, right? So it's the titling of the image and Johnson's position in the image um, signals to Douglas's portrait in a very direct way. Um, but the part is the only thing that's the sort of exact representation that carries from 1847 to 2003. And so I just started trying to understand why Douglas and his hair mattered to not just to me, but to other people writing and thinking and creating about hair in the contemporary. And what I found unique about this image among all of Douglas's images is that um, it's early on in his movement about the abolitionist circuit and his hair doesn't stay parted his whole life even later on when presumably he's quote unquote more free, right? His his freedom is more certain. And so it just for me became this starting point for thinking about how did people um, who weren't free handle their hair and at the point of having the opportunity to take pictures what did they do with themselves to signal that now I am free, that this image is of, is of me as um, an autonomous individual not held in bondage. And, and the part just seemed to be a small but useful reference for thinking about all that would have went into moving from enslavement to freedom and signaling that in, a, in an illustration.
0: And so, is this when you are talking about you know the touch and then signifying? And I can think of like you you put in a nice number of images, (laughs) you know, um, and not just images but also sculptures, which I appreciate. Um, So, is this what you mean when you are suggesting this call for haptic reading of haptic images?
1: Yeah. So I am thinking about how. Some images uh, seem to have a a, a texture or invite um an a sensation of texture upon looking at them. Uh and I try to include examples of that. I think this image of Douglas really indicates the texture of his hair. Uh I would say that about um contemporary works like Alice and SARS work really. Um underscores texture for the viewer, um but then there's this also this way where a haptic viewing uh I think is a a bodily experience having to do with memory and familiarity, separate from. The surface quality of the image, and so I think the f- documentary films really sort of get at that tension. Right, the film surface, by nature of the medium, is smooth. But if you're watching films about um, hair straightening and relaxing, seeing the image of perm chemicals laid on hair, that is a that calls to a bodily sensation that is familiar. If you've had that experience or the uh, depictions of a hot comb pressing through hair and the steam and the smoke, <laughs> the experience of that <laughs> coming off hair. Um, I think those are examples of images where the texture of the image might not um, inherently uh be roughed, so to speak, but the bodily experience, the bodily encounter with the image um, is certainly a haptic experience. Um, And I think hair is that, black hair is that thing as well, is also a haptic image where one has a haptic experience. It's part of why people, Inappropriately asked to touch black hair all of the time because there's a, a visual experience of the texture of the hair that some of us relate to on a bodily level and others want to relate to on a bodily level, whether they're able to or not.
0: And, you know, there was an image you had of the metal comb, and now there is a reinvention of the metal comb that you plug electrically. But I remember when I was a kid in Senegal, they would put that metal comb on a stove, and then you know, then then <laughs> they would put that mm-hmm. directly onto your hair. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting because your your book made me think about how my body has transformed to how I react to this metal comb. Mm-hmm. So when I first saw it, I was like, oh no. And then, you know, now you see, it. you just plug it into the wall and and I'm like, oh, okay. But till this day, I cannot do it (laughs) because there's, there's this, it's like my body remembers the trauma of like flinching and, you know, your ears, um, which is different if you haven't experienced, you know, it going straight from the stove and onto, onto your hair and they're yelling, don't move.
1: <laughs> so You're absolutely right. That's a great example that the electric hot comb doesn't feel menacing in the way that the comb that was laid on a stove um, was. Although I don't think I'd I want to experience the electric one either, but you're right. There isn't this sort of prelude to what's about to happen by laying it on the stove and all of that.
0: (laughs) So when you're, would you also relate this to haptic blackness? Is that the same terminology or is that more of um, encompassing everything of the visual of the hair and because you do this interesting connection of drawing, we're used to using skin as a marker of blackness, Mm -hmm. but now you're like, well, hair is something that we really need to focus on, but really the touch of the hair, the, the, the sensation and the feeling.
1: Yeah, I think when I'm thinking about hair, as a as another way for thinking about blackness as opposed to the skin, I'm thinking about other elements of the body that also signify the black body. Right, so hair is this thing that when we see black hair, we believe we understand that it's it's from a black person. Uh, and through the book, I try to offer examples. Um whether it be um, David Hammond's nap tapestry, an artwork made of locks. So we we understand in seeing the work that it's hair from a black person, or you know, nineteenth uh, century thinkers who were giving samples of black hair and writing about them, um, that there this this the point is that hair can. Black hair can stand in for the Black body in the way that Black flesh often does. Um, but that Black hair is complicated in a different way because of how we touch it and how we feel about it. And that it's meant to be touched. When I think of things like combs, I think there are certainly um, ways that Afro pics in particular, and I I think you're right, the hot comb also has been um, Used as another signifier, right, of blackness and black hair, but I think material culture I would hold as separate and apart from the black body. Um, it's relevant and related, but I, I think it's I think it's different.
0: So when you're looking at black hair as an archive, you know, in chapter one, you discuss how it you know, not only reveals information about people of African descent, but also how it records notion of feeling and practices of touch that have gone unexamined. So while you've been working on this you know project, why do you think the central experience of blackness has been ignored?
1: The central experience.
0: So the of- the the touch and the feeling of we've only considered, you know, Yes, there were the scientific explanations, the inferiority versus superiority. But, you know, your work sheds light to the touch that's just not been really talked about when it comes to black hair in the archive. You know, we we, I'm not going to say that black hair in the archive is not there, but, you know, you add on another layer that's just, um, it just hasn't been really discuss.
1: Sure. Yeah, I think that um I think that getting at touch and feeling where black hair is concerned, I think it's it's complicated and I I hope that the book sort of attends to why that why it is complicated, right? You know, on the one hand, I think because of how popular straightening has been, uh, we often start with an assumption that Black people have had a problem with the feel of Black hair, right? Because of the hot comb, because of the straightening. And so, um, you know, there's always already an assumption that, you know, the kind of cultural annihilation understanding of you know slavery emerges and then black people survive slavery hating everything about their existence kind of kind of thing and so access to cosmetics that help manage the texture of black hair lead us to sort of give up on the sensual and texture textural meaning of black hair to black people Um, So there's that. And then I think as I started to want to make sense of that, I think the corollary to the physical sensual questions is also the sentimental sensual questions, the interiority, how people feel. Um, So much written, especially coming out of the late 60s, uh, about self-hate as you know a guiding factor and what Black people do with their hair. And so for me, because I started the study sort of refusing to deal with straightening, it just kind of opened the door to all of these other questions that we hadn't really asked. Um, and I try to say in the beginning that um, it's not as if straightening is irrelevant even to what we think counts as um, qualitatively good natural hair, right? There's always the sort of haunting presence of straightening and white beauty norms. And I think Carrie James Marshall so nicely illustrates that uh, in the work that I include in, in the book um, from the beauty shop. Um, but I think that and sort of tabling, tabling straightening as uh, a thing just allowed me to look at textured hair from a variety of different angles, and the sensual and textual, textural um, were just so necessary. You know?
0: And so I do want to ask, you know, because I was curious. You mentioned it in the book. Chris Rock's documentary, The Good Hair, produced in 2009. I wonder if, you know, before working on the project or even just while you were working on the project, did your ideas of the documentary change? Where Did it start off in one way and then end up in another? Or um, because, you know, that... <laughs> it's almost like a staple when it comes to black hair, whether it was, it's for a good reason or a bad reason, but it's some, he did something, you know, that much we can admit sure. he did. He started a conversation. Um, and then he, he publicized it. Maybe that was the issue, <laughs> but I wonder yes. if your ideas, you know, changed throughout while, while you were working on this project.
1: Um, For sure. You know, I think that, that, I think it's kind of a responsibility um, as a researcher of popular culture to expand one's position <laughs> on something. Um, it, it's not necessarily throw things away, although sometimes that happens. But um, you know, to be uh, to be a multivalent viewer, you know, yeah. I can I can appreciate things in a colloquial sense that I've always enjoyed, even once I treat them critically and come to see them, you know, in other ways. The Good Hair documentary, what was interesting is that there, when scholars have wanted to write about popular culture treatment of Black hair, they deal with this documentary. And like you said, it it is popular. It's well known. He did a speaking tour about it it had a rollout you know um so it's sort of undeniable and it's something a film people ask me about quite a bit I think I had to change my opinion about it um not you know whether it's good or bad positive or negative but when I sat with the body of films that preceded and I talk about in the book um especially um, Regina Kimball's film, I think it just helped me understand that um, what he does is something that superstars are able to do is produce a cultural work as if it is made in a vacuum Mm -hmm. as opposed to in deep conversation with many other people asking similar questions. You know, what he does, there's... um, more than a decade of Black women filmmakers making films about hair and asking related questions and not for comedic effect. And so I think, um, I hope I hope that comes across in my treatment of that work, that um, whatever he has to say, whatever one thinks about what he has to say or not, Uh, If you're really curious about the treatment of Black hair on film, there are many other places to go um, in addition to or beside Chris Rock um, for that kind of engagement.
0: That was was well put. (laughs) Really just explaining the (laughs) conversation, having deeper conversations.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say I mean I think if if you're wondering what I think about the film, I think it is on brand for Chris Rock that's what I would say you know it's masculinist has some classism there. Um, I think there are moments of interesting contemplation uh, in in the work um I think if there, if I had to sum up, it, a critique in, in a simple statement, I would say that for how complex Black hair is, especially for Black women, I'm not sure that a spoof works for for this subject, if that makes sense. Yeah, I
0: think, um, and your, your book clearly shows that even as a Black woman reading your book, I'm like, wow, I mean, this is this is vast. No yeah. one black woman is an expert on all black hair. Like <laughs> it's, no. just, it's not possible. Your book it made me realize possible. what I already knew, but in a more intricate way of like, yeah, mm. this, this, this goes beyond, like we need all of us together <laughs> to really um, do the work of black hair, the healing, the, that interiority, exteriority of what this really means to us
1: it's true it's true
0: (laughs) so to kind of take it back because one of my favorite things about the book that you know ignorantly i didn't think of was when you point to how black hair also suffered from you know the middle passage that too was lost um so can you tell us a little bit about willie morrow's work and i hope i'm pronouncing her name right so she's Mm -hmm. the entrepreneur from alabama um, and her 400 years without a comb. So how does that function in articulating your argument?
1: So Willie Morrow, I think, is a genius. He passed away in 2022, mm-hmm. uh, an entrepreneur, collector, inventor, all of the things. And he, I think he's another person, sort of um, to my point about Chris Rock's good hair, is that Many times the most popular representations seem like they are spawned you know, from the creator's mind alone, um, but they are really part of a context. So Willie Morrow makes movies. He writes this book, 400 Years Without a Comb. Uh, his materials were collected and put on show in California for an exhibition on black hair. And what he's really doing is trying to tease out this connection between slavery and Black hair care, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to sort of working through material items and some writings, try to understand what happened between the Middle Passage and 20th century practices of, of Black hair care. Um, I I think that In my research, um, I I felt a responsibility to really try to have some clarity about the practice of black hair in slavery because it's really so hard to Mm -hmm. know. I think Willie Morrow is absolutely right that the loss of material culture and privacy had an impact on how Black people handled um, their bodies and personal care. Um, I think that from what I was able to find, what I know for sure is we'll sort of never really know know, what all Black people were able to do and not do. Um, But I think that when we take Black women's knowledge seriously and community practice seriously, and the production of culture, even in absence of materials, mm-hmm. I think then it's possible to imagine a way in which Black culture is not annihilated. By slavery, right? That you can you can destroy objects and you you can obliterate things, but something as simple as the knowledge of hair braiding, I would argue, is an indicator that things survive, right? <laughs> knowledge survives, um, and so I, I think that. You know, I offer a reading of some of what Willie Morrow offers, and I hope I offer uh, another way to think about the gaps that he rightfully points out. You know, something happens, things happen. There are many losses, innumerable losses as a consequence of slavery. Um, But if we change the way we go about looking for resonance and things that endure, then then maybe we find other stuff, other things that survive.
0: And I think you did. Um, it reminds me of your reading of Madam C. J. Walker. Um, you, I mean, you know, you you nicely state like, listen, we can go about this in different ways, <laughs> but what we can say yeah. is, you know, that she helped women and kind of embrace that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, that they didn't have and that, that changed the community. Um, So yeah, that it was I was like, oh, where are we going with this please? (laughs) But um, I liked how you took it and it's, it's really about taking black women's knowledge seriously. That, that is a yes.
1: <laughs> and especially outside of the frameworks of capitalism, right? That we can talk about what people know, even if they never turn a dollar on it, right? That is just what they know in their being and their living, whether they can sell it at the market.
0: And so just to, you know, because I guess I'm a little curious when you were looking through the archive, One of the things that may have come out that is still long lasting would be braids. Were you surprised? Uh, Did you find anything that surprised you? That is, you know, I guess just maybe hidden in the eye criers that are like missing links or uncompleted, just unfinished puzzles that we'll never know that you started, but there was just no ending.
1: Yeah. So, um, hmm, that there was no ending. I think two two things. Uh, one one thing that I found that was a really great surprise to me, um, in my family and other Black families I know of, you know, I there's lore about hair, right? Um, who you let touch and comb your hair, or um, gifting a lock of someone's hair, or a braid, or something like that. Uh, I found a collection of hair braids from Frederick Douglass's own family that I thought was fascinating that, um, you know, as a sentimental token, he had um, gifted braids of his children and of his own hair. So I thought that was really fascinating. Relatedly, a sort of dead end that I hit that um, maybe someone will find a way to know more about this. I often hear, and I was even recently asked to comment on this idea that Black people braided patterns into their hair as part of the escape plans to free themselves from slavery. I did not find evidence of that. I don't know how one would evidence that maybe if in a slave narrative, if someone Mm. had admitted doing such a thing, but even then, I'm not sure Mm. the context of abolitionist publishing, that would have been the best thing to do. Right. To put that kind of thing in writing, not even so much so because it was sort of give away a secret, but because at least in the U.S enslaved people are very much tormented mm. through their hair anyway, so why add to that? Um, so I I did not find that, but it is a question I get asked a lot, and I'd love if someone took that up and <laughs> was able to find out more about yeah. that.
0: that. That would definitely be interesting, um, but thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. So the other thing you do is you, you know, we've been talking about this, but in your analysis of photographic images, sculptures, and films of Black hair, what do you think each of these visual mediums tell us about touch? So how do the artists behind the camera, how do they reimagine touch and Blackness in the 21st century? You compare that, you know, to earlier, and I was like, oh, yeah, you know, we can see the differences of and I like how you bring in like YouTubers and influencers. God bless those people. <laughs> you know, they're such a key, they're such a key you know development at least for me. I remember, but um, and not just the women, but men. You know, I didn't know how to braid, but it was men on YouTube <laughs> who like yeah. laid it out. I was like, oh, black people, pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, but um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I think there's a few different examples. Um, I think photographers and filmmakers of the nineties really help us by depicting touch. Uh, the documentaries, especially, they just sort of put touch on film in a way that, um, was definitely not part of the sort of spectacular representations of textured hair in the 1970s, for example. And I think influencers in the 21st century continue that by um, styling their own hair on camera outside of, you know, a sort of introspective discussion of hair, just placing hair in their everyday uh, lives. So, yeah, I think film and video is really the the chief medium where uh, in contemporary illustrations, people are showing us touch and producing touching images um, that help us really understand the role of the hand in the construction of the image of Black hair.
0: Mm-hmm. And with your goal of examining mythologies about blackness as a surface realized in this dual sensation of seeing and feeling, what did this work bring out in you? So, did it nav- did you, were you did you change the way you were teaching, or you know, address students differently in class when it comes to hair? Um, well, not address them, but the topic. Um, was there a sort of piece or pieces that caused you to pivot in your pedagogical approach?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I don't think it, I changed my classroom interactions and I was already, you know, wearing my hair in particular ways before I got this far along in the book. But I think that, um, I think it just, the project helped me really expand my understanding of aesthetics and freedom, right? Be even beyond hair to just Mm -hmm. see, um, to have a greater openness about how to visually portray freedom, but also Aside from the visual, what are the other ways we can approach freedom outside of um the feathers of state sanctions and legal approaches right I think when and i I think when I think of this, I think of um you know people talk about living softly and you know <laughs> discussions of joy every day, these things that seem. Separate and apart from here, but I think in the process of writing the book, it just really opened me up to what are the sort of everyday ways people seek freedom um, apart from what the state can recognize or support
0: I think one thing it made me think about was um, black nails. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, hair, nails, eyebrows, lashes. Mm -hmm. You know, they're kind of um, these. It's kind of like a statement of freedom of, you know, Mm -hmm. this is how I'm going to show up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it would be interesting to have like scholarship of black nails.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it would be. (laughs)
0: so readers take what they will from the book and you know there's this anxiety around writing a book I have yet to write my first book but I've been told (laughs) and you know did you have some sort of imagined reader while you was writing this or were you you know writing this with uh Students in university in mind or museum curators. That was another thing I thought of. I'm like, this book would be good for those two people too. But um what what imagined reader did you have in mind?
1: That's a great question. I think I had a few. I definitely was thinking about scholars and all the great scholarship on black hair that preceded this book, Noli Way Rooks. Work, uh, Tanisha Ford, Ingrid Banks, Ayanna Bird, and Lori Tharps. Um, yeah, just thinking about these great ethnographies about um, Black hair communities, you know. So I definitely was thinking about scholarly readers. I was thinking about arts professionals and artists, because I I had been at work on it for a while. But when I started to look at art, I feel like what I was curious about really came alive for me. And so I had hoped that um, they would find this book useful. Um, And then also people who are sophisticated lay readers, not Mm. necessarily reading scholarly work, um, or who had not thought of museums as a place to learn more about Black hair, but them too.
0: And to return that question to you, how do you walk away from this book, the process of writing, editing, um, refining? what? what new curiosities or sensibilities did new growth leave you with? Hmm.
1: I think I finished new growth excited about different ways to explore, um, things I'm interested in. Someone suggested, um, Music, you know, doing a whole book about, or a whole creation, maybe not a book about hair and music. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think I I finished New Growth, excited about other books I might write, but open to other ways of creating, to explore phenomena besides book writing.
0: Well. We'd be excited to hear and or read (laughs) whenever, you. you know, it comes out. We'd love to have you back on. But thank you so much for making the time and joining us. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you.